Hello, and welcome to Plotris. This is Lane. This is Meg. And today we're reviewing Duke of Midnight by Elizabeth Hoyt. This was published in 2013 and is number six in the Maiden Lane series. And yes, we are doing a complete reread or initial read of the Maiden Lane series. Uh, and we are re-releasing the ones we previously recorded in order. So if you are following along, welcome. <laughs> welcome. Welcome. Um, yes, this is the sixth Maiden Lane episode that we're releasing. There are two additional ones actually in the next, coming up soon. So very fun. Uh, note that this is the final book about the Duke of St. The Duke? <laughs> The final book about the ghost of St. Giles. I, I have to be honest, I don't feel like this trilogy within the series works. As a trilogy, I don't think it does. Like, the books are connected because there are the ghosts, but that's really it. They don't interact with each other very much. Like, they make little cameos in each other's books, right? But part of it is because there's, it's a, sequential reveal right so right. the first book we're like oh wow this guy's the ghost and then you're like oh there are more ghosts so the second book you know two of them and the third book you know who all three are but that does mean that they don't you know play into each other's lives as much as they could for a trilogy right well and because this has to be a there is a bad guy narrative mm -hmm. it can't just be this is a part of town or this is a world where bad things happen and therefore there is always a new enemy. Right. There has to be the big bad. And you feel like the first book in the trilogy presents and resolves a big bad within itself. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the books in the trilogy introduce additional conflicts that you weren't necessarily expecting. And yeah. they don't really feel like a natural progression. So I, I didn't feel like the getting of the big bad in this book was a like, and they finally done it. It was like a, wait, is this the guy who did those things? Are they trying to tell me this is wrapped up with a bow? This doesn't really feel that all that climactic. Yeah. And I mean, we were talking about this before we started recording, but yeah, the, the first book felt very you know, this is new. This is something new. There's a, there's a bad guy we're going to take down. Second right. book, she didn't have a new antagonist. It was related to the first book. But in this third book, it was a new antagonist. So she didn't have the three books be connected in that way either. Like if you had known that the ghosts were going after like the head of a specific thing, in, maybe. In, okay. If worked. in Winter's book... You've known the bad guy was working for a bigger bad. Yes. And if in the second book, the name of the big bad had been dropped. Right. Then it being revealed here would have felt like a progression. But I'm trying to say this as not critically as possible because overall, I do think I like this little trilogy. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like Elizabeth Hoyt knew who the big bad was going to be when she wrote Winter's book. Yeah. Like I, it really feels like she was making up the main villain as she went along. Yeah. And it was a real missed opportunity to make this feel cohesive and meaningful. I agree. I agree with you. I think she knew who the romantic couples were going to be. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. But I, 
I agree with you. I don't I don't think she thought I don't think she thought to connect the plots more than that. Okay. Should we read the book jacket? I think so. Okay. When a masked man, 20 years ago, Maximus Batten witnessed the brutal murders of his parents. Now, the autocratic Duke of Wakefield, he spends his days ruling Parliament. But by night, disguised as the ghost of St. Giles, he prowls the grim alleys of St. Giles, ever on the hunt for the murderer. One night, he finds a fiery woman who meets him toe-to-toe and won't back down. Meets his match. Artemis Greaves toils as a lady's companion, but hiding beneath the plain brown surge of her dress is the heart of a huntress. When the ghost of St. Giles rescues her from footpads, she recognizes a kindred spirit and is intrigued. She's even more intrigued when she realizes who exactly the notorious ghost is by day. Desire ignites a dangerous passion. Artemis makes a bold move. She demands that Maximus use his influence to free her imprisoned brother, or she will expose him as the ghost. But blackmailing a powerful duke isn't without risks. Now that she has the tiger by the tail, can she withstand his ire or the temptation of his embrace? No, she can't. I mean, she can withstand his ire, but not the temptation. Eh. Yeah, I um, I think I was okay with this book jacket until the third paragraph. Yep. So there are some issues with the the third one there. There's also some issues with the book itself. I mean, as always, we can't just enjoy a book, can we? No. The one, so... This is in the jacket, so I don't feel like it's that much of a spoiler. Artemis figures out he's the ghost and demands he free her brother. Mm-hmm. And reading the text, I thought she was asking Maximus to free him in his capacity as the Duke. Mm-hmm. To exonerate him. To have his crimes... If expunged. not expunged, then waived or like whatever. Instead, he goes into where her brother is captive and like breaks him out of jail as the ghost. Mm-hmm. Therefore, her brother is like nominally free, even though Maximus basically imprisons him, but in no way, shape, or form can reintegrate or have a life back. Mm hmm. And the fact that that is not actually dealt with in the text is the thing that frustrates me the most. Mm-hmm. You mean like that Artemis didn't call him on it or? Or like if what Artemis was just asking for is get him out in any way possible, I don't give a shit if that had been more explicit. But she spends so much time talking about the power that earls have mm-hmm. and the power that the earls and her family have and chose not to wield to free her brother. Mm-hmm. And like. And that's the biggest frustration, and I get into this in my random number summary, but it also has to do with, like, Maximus's sense of his own power. Like, this mm-hmm. is a duke. This is one of the, like, 27 most powerful men in England, if not the world. And he decides that he needs to do all of his do-gooding 
in disguise as a max masked vigilante instead of in his capacity as one of the most powerful men that exists. Yeah, I I have a lot of issues with Maximus just in general as well. So yeah. Well, he's a extremely flawed character. Yes. And I think the only defense I have of him is he's an extremely consistent and believable character, <laughs> even though he is best described as a pile of dicks. <laughs> uh, tell me how you really feel about Maximus Lane. Kind of love him. Kind of loved him in this book. In no way, shape, or form was he redeemed. He's a big piece of shit. <laughs> so, like, fuck, Mary kill. Like, what would you pick for Maximus? What are my other options? Fuck, Mary Kill only exists when you're, like, making a choice. Uh, of the ghosts. Of the ghosts. Godric, Winter, and Maximus. Fuck, Mary Kill. I mean, Mary Winter. Obvi- I mean, obviously. Who is dying here? That's the question. Godric's dying. I'm fucking Maximus. <laughs> what about you? I think it would be the opposite. I think I would. I think I would put Godric and kill Max. Here's the thing: I've already mostly forgotten Godric's book. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to forget Maximus, for better or worse. Like that, you know that that's actually a very good point. Very good point. I fair point, well made, Miss Lane. Isn't that a quote from Fifty Shades of Grey? No. Never do that to me again. <laughs> Just because I have bangs now doesn't mean I'm Anastasia Steele. Anna, don't bite your lip like that. (laughs) Okay, we wrote a random number summary. The number that we generated was 13. And then when we say a random number summary, what we mean is we wrote a summary of the book that has a word count of 13. So, Lane, what is your 13-word summary? Maximus could never shame dukedom by marrying beneath him. Mass vigilantism is fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously. Like, yeah, he's got to be mostly concerned with the, you know, face he puts forward and behaving in this respectable manner at all the time. And marrying, you know, an earl's granddaughter whose brother did a thing would be stooping to a new low, putting his underpants on the outside and running around London. No worries. <laughs> you know, I do wonder about that because he seems to have like, zero issues with being caught. He never thinks about it. Like, he, Artemis threatens to expose him, and he's just like, no one's going to believe you. Like, he has no, like, no fear. But None. here's the thing. I buy it. Yeah. I mean, I don't I, disagree with you. I also I don't think it. it's inconsistent in his character for him to be like, I'm very worried about my reputation, but also I'm going to run around London pretending to be a superhero like he is the embodiment of white male privilege to the point that that it seems entirely rational um yes i totally agree with you he is the embodiment of white male privilege he's the embodiment of a guy who is like oh i have it so bad because this thing happened to me in my past but yes i get everything i want when i want it when i ask for it and i don't have to like do anything Oh, and your life is clearly significantly more tragic, and I never think about that or internalize it. Your life isn't any more tragic than my life. 
because my Meg, parents what, were killed. Meg, what is your 13 word summary before we get into the tragedy porn off? My 13 word summary is Maximus doesn't understand why Artemis doesn't understand why he just can't marry her. I mean, I'm with Artemis. Me too. I, I, like, that's my biggest issue with, with Maximus. That honestly is my biggest issue because I could forgive a lot of his dickishness if he was just so gone for Artemis that he would do anything for her. But I think that him being so gone for Artemis would have been out of character. I mean, like, I almost respect Elizabeth Hoyt for being like, I'm going to write the most dickish alpha bullshit hero and make no excuses for him and just present it on the page as the worst possible version of himself. And she's going to love him anyway. Like I almost, like I do respect the all in on that front. Yeah. I mean, it's a choice. Yes. I, she's obviously making a choice about what story she's telling. And, and like, I'm not yeah. saying I'm happy about it, but I'm like, we, we talked in the last, I think one of the last episodes we recorded about how a lot of the heroes in modern romance are sort of like generic feminist mm-hmm. anarchist, like aware of their own privilege. And mm-hmm. while that is extremely attractive and I'm very into those heroes and I'm glad for the space heroines are getting to be a foil to those individuals, like reading the opposite of that, like a hero who is kind of irredeemable. Yeah. Is fun in its own way? Yeah, like the only step he takes towards anything is like, okay, fine, I'll marry you, you know? Like, he does not change. He does not change. Oh, and I don't... We'll talk about, like, the things that he confronts in this book as societal ills in that he doesn't confront them and doesn't think that hard about them. Mm -hmm. I don't believe he became a better person through the course of this book, and I don't believe he's going to be a better person in subsequent books. Zero. Zero percent. Um, Gentleman Jackson's get fit workout for the vigilante Duke. Be a vigilante. I mean, isn't, okay. Doesn't he have like a training? I had a false memory of this book that there was like training equipment in his basement. There is. Well, then there you go. It's not a false memory. It's an actual memory. He has training equipment. He trains. He buys a cave. Yeah, in his bat cave, his Duke cave. Tropes. He has a bat cave. Yeah. Tropes. Any Batman trope you can think of, it's this one. His parents were killed in front of him on the way home from the theater when he was like 14 years old. He watched them die. And then he vowed to avenge their deaths. He is vengeance. He is the knight. He is Maximus Batten. He breaks into an insane asylum. Mm-hmm. I just realized his name is Batten. Instead of Batman, it's mm-hmm. one letter difference. One letter difference. That's him. That's him. There's also Alfred. I mean, his name's not Alfred, but he has a butler who also, you know, supports him in his vigilantism. His, butlin- his butler's name is Craven. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, uh-huh. and I think Trevelyn is basically revealed to be Gordon in this yeah. book. There's Trevelyan, who I love. I love Trevelyan. Oh my god, I love that guy. So excited. I'm really excited about his book. Okay, okay. Um, are there romance tropes in this book? 
They are both sad, tragic orphans. And this is where we get into the um, tragedy porn off. Yes, his parents were murdered in front of him. And yes, his baby sister is going blind. But he is a duke. Yep. And she was raised in poverty because her family had been cut off by a father who was slowly losing his mind and a mother who was an invalid. Her father dies and dies after shaming himself in the populace. Her brother gets falsely accused of murder and imprisoned in bedlam. So his, her mother dies of sadness and shock, and she is now living on her own as the only family for her falsely imprisoned brother. Yeah. Her life sucks. Yeah. And I mean, I know money doesn't buy happiness, but... It doesn't hurt. Easier. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, romance trope that I'm getting a little bit tired of is that he's into her because she's the only one who calls him on his shit. It is slightly like you're not like other girls, except that she's not like any other person because no person ever calls him on his shit. I'm torn on this trope because I think there are times I do. I am a sucker for I've never truly felt seen until I met you. Yeah. But I think there is a difference between that and you are the first person who's told me I'm an asshole. Yes. And I think I am getting tired of you are the first person who's been willing to tell me I'm an asshole. Yeah, exactly. I think seeing the internal truth of someone, I'm always going to find romantic. But if your internal truth is you're kind of a dick and you suck. Yeah. Maybe look at, look at that. Look in the mirror and see yeah, where you feel. Right? Yeah, maybe you shouldn't change yourself. You know, <laughs> like, like the book, like the, the, um, the book we were talking Heart No, the one, the one that we read daring in the Duke, like she calls him on his shit and he's like, Oh, I got to go work on myself. And there's like training montage off, off scene. He goes away for a year and he comes back and he's like, yeah, I was an asshole. Yeah. You know, like do that. Okay. Um, anything else? Oh, she'll do anything for her brother. Yeah. Um, Her brother is falsely imprisoned. She's been trying to get him out. Her family has not been willing to do sufficient things to free her brother. And so now she is going to blackmail this Duke into freeing him. We have already discussed my problems with that. Mm -hmm. All right. She is the ambiguous place between servant and relative mm-hmm. who dresses drably deliberately to blend in. And that was actually one of my favorite parts of this book. Yeah. I think even in really recent romance novels that are trying very hard to be progressive in a way I generally enjoy, you don't see companions on page. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought the way that this book engaged with that, like, strata of person unapologetically and didn't sugar, like, Maximus basically says on the page that, like, this tier of woman is a non-entity. Oh, absolutely. In a way that made me angry for Artemis, but also was like, yeah, this is absolutely what 
someone of that era. It's not that they wouldn't have seen a lady's companion. It's that they would have seen and chosen to disregard. It will automatically put her in this category of person I don't need to care about. Yep. Yeah. Um, oh, yes, there's another trope that I don't love, which is the near-death experience that leads to the revelation of usually love. I can stomach this Trump trope better the earlier it happens in the text. Well, yeah. And it happens extremely late here. It happens, like, I mean, definitely the final chapter. And probably the last ten paragraphs of the final chapter. You know? Anyway, whatever. All right. Um, before we go forward, I have to say, I think Elizabeth Hoyt is a very good writer to make me feel such strong emotions for a written character. That said, I really dislike Maximus a lot. <laughs> and I did not, <laughs> unlike Lane, I did not find pleasure in disliking him. Yeah. I don't think he was, like, redeemed here. Mm. But I did derive enjoyment from just how unapologetically horrid he was. Yeah. Uh, I think the other difference is that I really like Artemis. I like a lot about her character and the choices that she makes. And... I know I just said that I'm getting a little tired of the woman who stands up to the privileged dude, but I still like those characters in general for at least feeling an inherent sense of self-worth, right? So I, I do really like that Artemis, when she decides to sleep with Maximus, it's her decision to begin the affair. Yeah. I'm not disputing that she was a strong character for both taking agency over her own sexuality and insisting that he save her brother. Mm -hmm. But Elizabeth Hoyt starts all of her chapters and all of her books with these like parables, these like mini fairy tales. And inherently they're, you know, stories that are told in 20 total paragraphs. They're not, mm -hmm. no character in them has depth. And I feel like often the crux is woman who is stoic saves a man by forcing him to look inside. So she herself sort of manifests as a mirror. And I felt like Artemis was the first female character I've read by Elizabeth Hoyt who really embodies that. Like, and it's especially to me seen in the arguments or like lack thereof they have about the fact that he wants Artemis to be his mistress or at the very least, like, just wants to sleep with her and doesn't think through what the relationship will have to be moving forward. Mm -hmm. And usually I find romance hero who suggests mistress dumb to be, like, the lowest of the low piece of shit. And Maximus is that. I'm not disputing that. But I feel like Artemis in her, sure, like... I'm going to acquiesce with my body, if not with my words, when you start talking about the fact that we just are going to be together or we're super important to each other. And I'm only going to force you to realize just how wrong you were by not being there. A little frustrating. I wanted her to have, I wanted her to exist for reasons other than reflecting his bullshit. Yeah. 
I mean, I understand where you're coming from, but for me, I, I, I liked that the way she was challenging him was not through arguing, not, you know, like, I, do I want to read them arguing and then having sex and then arguing? No, I don't. I want to see her doing what she wants to do and standing up to his bullshit because she's just going to do what she wants to do or needs to do. So we read her very differently, I think. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I think just while reading the book, I was frustrated with her. Yeah, whereas all of my frustration was reserved for Maximus. Whereas I took pleasure in how... I wasn't frustrated with Maximus. I was like, what's the next asshole thing he's going to do that's completely in character? <laughs> he's such an asshole. I wasn't, like, into it. It's not like I'm sitting here like, oh, my God, I love a bad boy like this. It's like... I don't think very many romance novel authors are willing to go all in on a character that lacks any empathy to the degree <laughs> that he lacks empathy. And like, it's, I think it's manifested in the gin laws. But yeah, that's part of it. So like Maximus has spent his entire career as the ghost and his entire adult life in parliament fighting gin distilling and gin consumption. And like, can you imagine the lack of empathy and perspective it would take for someone to be like, the problem with poor people is that they have access to alcohol. Mm -hmm. Not, hey, maybe we should do something to combat poverty. Right. Maybe we should do something to like improve economic outlook for the slums. No, he just wants to get rid of Jen because that's clearly the problem. And at no point does he rethink that worldview. No. I mean, for me, like that, I think you're correct that that's a great example. For me, the quintessential example of, of Maximus being a, just a dick is that like even when he's doing nice things, even when he has the courage of his convictions, like he's really protective and loves his sister, Phoebe, who's going blind. Okay. And how does she, he show his love and protectiveness and care for her? He puts bars on her window so she's a literal prisoner in her house. But he does it so that she won't fall out and hurt herself. Do I believe wholeheartedly that this character both put bars on his sister's window and has never thought for one second about whether or not the solution to poverty he's proposing is actually a solution to poverty? Yeah, this character is completely internally consistent. I mean, absolutely, he is. He's not like one of those guys who's, who's like really sweet and nice at home, but then like hard on crime. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, all right. Do we want to move on to content warnings? Because there are quite a few. I mean, it's an Elizabeth Hoy, so. Yeah. Okay, I think the biggest one has to do with Apollo has to do with Apollo's situation. So Apollo, as we said, was accused of murder. He he didn't get out of it, uh, but instead of being executed or tried for the crime, instead he was put into bedlam. And so he's been living in an insane asylum for years at this point four years and he's in he's in prison and the guards are are abusive 
And then what happens in this book to really precipitate Artemis trying to get him out is that he tries to come to the aid of a female prisoner who's being sexually assaulted by getting the attention of the guards who then come and physically assault him and are going to rape him as well. I think it's made clear in the text that he's not actually raped. However, I don't think it's made clear in this text that he's not actually raped. It's ambiguous. It's It's definitely deliberately left ambiguous. Yes. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that the, the entire, everything that happens with Apollo in Bedlam is, is triggering. Let's just say that. Uh, And then the other issue I had is that there's a lot of, so there's problematic mental health talk. Partially it's historically accurate, right? Because this, this is what happened back then. And I don't think I would be offended by that so much. Like it's not, it's triggering, but it's not like I'm not upset with it. Right. It's not like handled poorly. What I do think is a little, a little frustrating is that at no point in the text is this idea that putting people with mental health issues into an institution is the best option for them. It's not really questioned in the book. Right. It's Apollo is innocent and not crazy. Therefore he doesn't deserve this, but guilty people and people who are actually suffering from mental health issues do is the implication. But again, you see Bedlam primarily from Maximus's perspective and Maximus doesn't give a shit about other people. His only thing when leaving Bedlam is, wait, you're raping these vulnerable people? Don't do that or I'll come fight you. It's not, do they deserve to be living in squalor? Yeah, he's, he doesn't go back to Parliament and start fighting for mental health reform, you know? No. Why would he? Because it's not him in there. It's not, exactly. It's not him. It's not his family. Not he doesn't even care that Apollo was in there because he still thinks Apollo is crazy and still murder these people, but was like, I guess I'll get him out for this person. Because I made out with her behind a folly. Kind of, I think she's hot. So if I get her brother out of bedlam, maybe she'll sleep with me. And it works. I mean, yeah. I just this is this is kind of what I both love and hate about Maximus. Uh Uh-huh. Like any other hero who sleeps with a virgin, whether or not, like, whether or not this thinking is correct, I feel like in a romance novel written in the last two years, beats himself up. Uh-huh. I don't care if she came into my bedroom. I don't care if she, like, stripped me naked before I woke up. I am ultimately a man responsible. She will bear the consequences of this so much more than I will. And ultimately... I should never put her in this position regardless of her actions. Maximus is like, yeah, I fucked a virgin like six or seven times, but like, that's not my fault. She came on to me. She came on to me. She came on to me. It's like, you're supposed to do say no. Way to absolve yourself of all responsibility, sir white man. Uh-huh. I believe 100% of this is how you reacted. Absolutely. Um, okay. I do want to also mention that there is, a death of an animal, so a horse dies on the page. And it is, like, probably the most graphic scene in the whole book. Mm-hmm. 
Not that, like for me, the gore and violence in this one did not register. I'll leave it to mm-hmm. Meg to say whether or not she felt like this was like visceral in that way. But the killing of the animal was like, holy shit, I know exactly where the sinew was. Yes. Uh, I mean, for me, the the gore and the violence, what happened, Apollo's assault is very difficult to read. But other than that, it's not, it's not. It's not gory. Yes, it's not gory. So, but if you're a person who needs to check, um, does the dog die in the end before you watch a movie? The horse dies in the end, okay? FYI. Yeah. Okay. How sexy is this book? I think it's really sexy. If you can ignore what a douche Maximus is. So my problem wasn't a, what a douche he was, even mm-hmm. though he was a douche. Because, like, apparently I can handle a little douchery in my <laughs> sex scenes. You know. Not douching, douchery. <laughs> My problem was that, like, the only out-of-character thing I felt like Maximus did in this whole book is he became, like, a fucking poet <laughs> whenever they were having sex and started calling her Diana. I know. I know. And, and, like, started, like, praising his moon goddess, even though the first reference to moons in this book was his mom. And I just, like, I don't know. It, it, his version of dirty talk was so unsexy. Mm-hmm. And he was not a character that I was laughing with. <laughs> right. Like, it was, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it was, like, purple and flowery in the sense of it, like, being ambiguous. No. This is you know where the body parts are. You know what's going on. Like, it is explicit and forthright in terms of, like, the what is happening physically on the page. But the, like additional conversation between the characters that is meant to like amp the sexiness was not sexy to me. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. I mean, the sex scenes are very animalistic. I would say in this book, like purpose, purposefully, I think. And yeah, her name is not Diana. Her name is, I know. I, I I don't know what his issue is with like Greek versus Roman. He was just real sure that she should have been named Diana. And it mostly felt weird. It, it is really weird. I, I still don't get it. Like, I get it, but I don't get it. Right? Like, I understand the reference. I'm not a dummy. I know that Artemis is Diana, you know. But I don't understand why you would just start calling someone that. Like, why change the Pantheon? Right. Right. Unless he wants it all to fit in with his with his Maximus, with his Greek name, with his Roman name. Oh yeah, because he's the Roman general is absolutely meant to be front of mind. Yeah, I mean totally. overall, I had a lot of fucking fun reading this. Don't it, get me wrong. Look, I I read this book in the span of about two hours, like straight. It's, it's, it. I enjoy this one. But not because I like buy this. this. I buy the romance. I'm not into the romance. Does that make sense? It it totally makes sense. Yeah, I like, buy everything about this together. book is internally consistent, and I respect it for that. You buy the romance, but you don't think it's romantic. Yes. Got it. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. So like, it's not like I'm. I'm not telling you not to read this. It's fun and in terms of this series so far it's 
enjoyable. Yeah. Other than my frustrations with it not feeling like a good conclusion to the ghost trilogy. Yeah. So out of the six books that we've read so far, it's probably like my third number three book. I've basically blacked out two of them. Yeah. So I don't really know. Well, it's at least number three or four. I think it might be two, to be honest. Wow, because number one is, of course, Thief of Shadows. Correct. Obviously. Number two, probably going to go with Notorious Pleasures. I like Charming Mickey. Yeah, that one's rock bottom for me. And then I would go with this one. Yes, this is my two. Yeah. And then, anyway. We will, at the end of the series, we'll rank them all. And we'll yeah, make sure them all, but I haven't yet, so we can't do it. I think what we need to do is we need to, like, write down our ranking but not show it to each other, and then we can reveal to each other. But what do I do about the ones that I blacked out and I don't remember at all? Just listen to our past podcasts. Listen to the past <laughs> like, podcast. Just read, read, my, read our review really briefly, and you're like, oh, yeah, it was that one. Because that's my problem is one of them, like, legitimately heroes – I realized in reading this when they were like, and her husband, Lord Griffin, I'm like, who the fuck is that? I know I read this four months ago and I have no recollection. No idea. I think we'll have to go from least to bet to favorite. Because at the bottom, we're going to be like, yeah, I don't really remember it that much. So you know what I mean? The problem is like sometimes the one I hate the most also I remember. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes, guys. I'm nervous about Valentine because Meg has been warning me because I've never read Valentine's book. Meg's been warning me since I read Sweetest Scoundrel, probably. Sweet, probably Sweetest Scoundrel for the first time. That like Valentine's book was not good because Valentine is shitty. And she just never warned me about Maximus, who is the most what's it called? Alcohol? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Like, Maximus is the most alcohol ever. And I'm not mad about it, but I'm not into it. And I'm just like, how in the, what is Valentine's character that he deserves a warning that I never got for Maximus? <laughs> you will find out in four more books, Lane. So, like, around Christmas, you guys, look forward to that. Yep. That's it. That's correct. Mm. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. If you're enjoying the pod- podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and check us out around the internet wherever you can find Flatris.